The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I am so excited to preach on this passage today. All morning long, I've just been excited for this time and just captivated by Jesus' statement concerning his own word. And I want to get ahead of myself, but just the, the beauty and the power of the words of Christ just has captivated my heart. And I have a sense of the tremendous, tremendous and immense privilege I have week by week to minister and open up uh, the word. I love that song we just sang. It just moves me. One word in particular... Food, the word food. I want to feed you with the word of God today. That's what I want. I want the food of the word of God to just be in your systems when you walk away today. And that's my prayer as we look at Matthew 24, 32 through 35. As I come to this passage, I think about this one question. What is permanent and what is temporary? Wildflowers are temporary. I think we all know that. Their beauty lasts just a few days and they wither. Morning mist is temporary. The sun rises in its heat and scorches the mist and it's gone. So also, at a different season, the morning frost. Temporary again. Sun melts it and it's gone. Movement of the wind as it goes north or south, east or west is temporary. Soon it's blowing a different direction. The gust blows, leaves flutter, then it's gone. The moment has passed. All of these things are temporary. Then the real question for us is what is permanent? What is eternal? Is the ground beneath our feet permanent? Is the Atlantic Ocean permanent? Are the Rocky Mountains, are they permanent? How about the sun and the moon and the stars? Are they forever? Recently here in America, the striking events of history have brought home with painful reality the impermanence of the world around us. In one stunning moment, the twin towers of the World Trade Center melted before our eyes and were gone. Completely gone. Disappeared forever from the face of the earth. In five shocking minutes, uh, an earthquake shook the city of Port-au-Prince and Haiti and reduced much of it to rubble, snuffing out many lives in the process, causing everyone who lived there to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that even the ground beneath their feet is not permanent. Neither is life in this world. Could it be that the most permanent thing in this universe is something invisible? A word, or actually words spoken 2,000 years ago by Jesus. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What is a word? Is it an invisible thing, the sound of a whisper? In the wind that floats through the air and causes your eardrums to vibrate for a second and then it, it disappears like a faint echo in a cavern? Is that what a word is? A word, is a word anything more than a fleeting shadow of reality, something like a nothing? For many of us, I think words would be the very picture of impermanence. Something that lasts only as long as we hear it and then it's gone. But Jesus here said His words will last forever. but that heaven and earth won't. He makes an assertion here. Heaven and earth will pass away. 
but my words will never pass away. Now, the context of that statement, I think, couldn't be more powerful. Remember that Jesus has, has predicted the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. As they're coming out of the city, the disciples are in awe of the, the temple building and all of its massive stones, and by extension, Jerusalem. What massive stones, they're so impressed. And Jesus says in Matthew 24 and verse 2, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. You realize that in verse 35 of this chapter, Jesus is saying the same thing about these stones too? I mean, they're all going to get thrown down, all of them. Not just in Jerusalem, but all over the world. Everything that man has erected will be, as it says in Daniel chapter 2, blown away like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, and not a trace will be left. It's all going to be gone. Well, the disciples obviously are fascinated by this statement that Jesus makes and, and they come to him privately on the Mount of Olives and they say, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And for this whole chapter, Jesus has been answering that three-part question. In verses 4 through 14, I think, as I've described before, Jesus describes in very general terms what life will be like on this earth, in this sin-cursed world, from the first to the second comings of Christ. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. He describes the special and vicious persecution of the church and, and the apostasy in the church. Many will betray the faith and will turn against each other. He talks about the need to stand firm to the end. Those that stand firm to the end will be saved. Very difficult time to come. And he gives us this beautiful prediction or predictive indicator of the progress of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So as the gospel makes its progress throughout the world, then we're getting closer to the end of the world. Verses 4 through 14. Then in verses 15 through 25, he describes the special circumstances surrounding first, I believe, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 under the Romans. And then, as I preached in great detail, a reestablishment of the temple, an establishment of the abomination of desolation spoken of the prophet Daniel, I believe the coming of the Antichrist, and some special and vicious and terrible tribulations and persecutions that will come connected with that as, as well. We see the reenactment. As it was, so it will be. It's going to happen again. And the fleeing those in Judea up to the mountains, no one having time to go down in the house to get anything out of their house, no one having time to go back to get anything out of the, even the cloak. They've got to just run for their lives because of the terrors of that time. As it was in the days of the Romans, and so it will be at the end of the world, I believe. And then in verses 26 through 31, the description of the, the actual events right toward the end, the second coming of Christ described. It will be no secret coming. It will be visible from one end of the, of the sky to the other like lightning that flashes from the east, visible even in the west. You don't have to go out in the desert to see it. Nobody's going to need special training. You don't need any faith. You don't need anything. You just need to look up. And you will, if you're alive at that time, look up. And so will everyone. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the king, peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. And immediately after the distress of those days, says Jesus, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And they will see the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 
Jesus will return and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And he will send out his angels. Last week we talked about this. And he will gather the elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So we come to this section of scripture that we're looking at today. And you know what a shock it must have been to these Jewish disciples of Jesus. They thought that the temple, city of Jerusalem, would last forever. Jesus revealed that they're actually going to be destroyed. And so this question of them, what's permanent must be in their minds. When will this happen? They, they still want to know. And, and if this is impermanent, then, then what is permanent? What can I build my life on? What is going to last here? Now, concerning the first of those two questions, when will this happen? The answer he gives for the rest of the chapter is really twofold. First of all, he's going to say, look for the signs. Add up the signs. I've been telling you some specific details. When you see these things happening, look for these signs, you'll see a progress toward the end of the world. We'll be able to lay it out. We'll be able to connect the dots. Look at those signs. Add up the signs. And and secondly, he says that he's coming like a thief in the night and no one's going to know exactly when. So we have to be ready at any time. Concerning what is permanent, what can I build my life upon? As I look at these four verses that we're studying today, I think the unifying theme of today's sermon is not so much the timing of Christ's coming, but rather the trustworthiness of Christ's words. We're going to look at the words of Christ today. The word of Christ in its power. The word of Christ in its clarity, in its immediacy. In its difficulty and in its eternity, its permanence. And in the end, all we have as we look ahead to the second coming of Christ are the words of Christ. Amen. That's what we have. Spoken either by him or by his apostles. We know nothing about the second coming apart from the words. And so we've got to cling to these words so we can know how to be ready. And be filled with joy at his coming and not be ashamed. And so we must cling to the words of Christ. So let's look first at this issue of the clarity of Christ's words. And we have immediately this parable of the fig tree. Look at verse 32 and 33. It says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So we have this, this parable. He doesn't call it that, but this parable of the fig tree. Jesus frequently used just homely, kind of everyday, physical things in life to teach spiritual principles, parables. And parables are really fascinating teaching tools. They're really kind of amazing, actually. Some people think parables were given to make things clear. Well, that's not entirely true. They're given to make things clear for the church, to the insiders, to the believers. They actually make things more difficult for the outsiders. They led people in Jesus' day to think he was nuts. He would say these things and it would be like, these are the sayings of a demon-possessed man. He's crazy. And if you, don't, if you think that's a strange reaction, then just try it sometime. I've told you this before. Just take one of the parables of Jesus and go to an average person in the street. Talk to somebody until you find somebody who never goes to church. Just an unbeliever, never went to church, whatever. Just an average American pagan. You just go up to them and just tell them the words of the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed that a man sowed in his garden. And it grew up and it got bigger and bigger like this tree until the birds came and nested in its branches. 
you are nuts. Is that all you wanted to say to me? No, that's it. Well, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Does that help you? Well, I guess I don't have ears. Oh, may God give you ears to hear. Because what happens is the disciples didn't get it either. What do they do? Like humble spiritual beggars, they went back to Jesus and said, what does this mean? I don't get it. And then he explained everything in detail. He said, the outsiders get it in parables. The insiders have the good sense to come and ask me. And I, I just open up my hand and I satisfy the desire of every living thing. You ask and I'll tell. If any man lacks wisdom, let him come to Jesus. And he will make it very clear. And then the parables become the clearest of all Jesus' teaching tools. Extremely memorable, very efficient. Kingdom of heaven like yeast that a woman mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. A very efficient way of talking about how the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth in a very hidden secret way that people will not be able to see. And how it spreads through your own individual life from inside until it conquers everything you are. That's very efficient teaching tool. That's the way the parables work. What about this parable of the... Uh, of the fig tree. Well, the whole thing about agricultural parables is that there are some things that God has ordained that take time to develop. They don't come overnight. They don't come instantly. God says, let there be light, and there's light. But in, Gen in Genesis chapter 2, he creates a certain species of herbs and plants that require human cultivation. And so while he creates the genetic pattern for those, they're not all there immediately, and they need some time to develop. And so it is with these uh, agricultural parables. The fig tree has to develop. We're in a history here, developing movement. We have to look at the movement, the development. As soon as you see its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. And so when you see some simple things happening in the spring, here in North Carolina, you know, the, 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 trees come out very, uh, the leaves come out very quickly, don't they? And when you see just the explosion of green, you basically know that, that winter's over. Summer's coming very soon. You just know that. You just know these things. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You, you know this, don't you? And so when you see all these things, you know that the end is, is imminent. It's near. That's what he's saying very simply. And so what does he mean by all these things? Well, that's quite a question, and we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, basically, the signs that, that Christ has already given. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in various places, apostasy, persecution of the church, standing firm to the end, gospel uh, preached in the whole world, as testimony to all nations, abomination of desolation, uh, people running for their lives, and then the celestial signs that we talked about. When you see all of that, Jesus is coming back. So when you see all of these things, you know that it is near, it's imminent. All those signs point to the imminent return of Christ. It makes it clear. Now, the fig tree. What is the budding of the fig tree? Some would simply say, look, you've got it. You don't have to say anything more, Pastor Davis. You've already explained the agricultural thing just when you see all this. But now they go a little deeper and say, you know, in the Bible, fig tree represents Israel. And it may, actually. There are numbers of indicators that from time to time God actually does assign that kind of a thing. Sometimes Israel's like a, a, a vineyard surrounded by a rocky wall. But a lot of times there's this agricultural idea. They point to Jeremiah uh, 24, in which Jeremiah has shown two baskets of figs, one of them really, really good, ripe, succulent figs, and the other one, other basket, just wretched so bad they could not be eaten. And the good figs uh, represent uh, the Jews that are going to be restored to the promised land. And the bad figs are those that are going to be destroyed. And so they say, okay, the figs then represent, the budding of the fig tree represents the, the coming back of the Jews to the promised land. 
Or they'll cite Jesus' parable of the fig tree in Luke 13 when there's this fig tree, as you remember, that, uh, that doesn't bear any fruit and he's about to cut it down. He's had it with this fig tree. And the gardener says, no, wait a minute, just let me, let me, give, me, give me a little more time, let me dig around it, let me put some fertilizer down and give it a year. And if it bears fruit, fine. If not, then cut it down. So they say that represents Israel and its fruitlessness. Or even more poignantly in Matthew's gospel, uh, after the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus goes into the temple and looks around and then goes back uh, to, I think, Gethsemane and spends the night and then comes back the next morning and en route sees a fig tree and he's hungry and he goes up but finds nothing but leaves. And he curses the fig tree and he says, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withers. And again, the timing, it just seems to be that the tree seems to represent the Jewish nation. And so from this, some Christians conclude that the budding of the fig tree it should be in some way connected to Israel or the reestablishment of the Jewish state in Israel in 1948. And on May 14, 1948, they said this is the budding of the fig tree. And then that sets somewhat of a timetable for the return of Christ. They link it then with verse 34 when he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so they say within one generation of 1948, Jesus will return. So some uh, dispensational premillennialists and Christian Zionists and others take this approach and, and really setting the clock at that moment. It may well be. My final word on that is maybe. Maybe. It may be that there will be some people who, are, who will, will be alive on earth at both of those events. Both the reestablishment of Zionist Israel in Palestine, 1948, and the second coming of Christ. That is possible. But if that whole generation should die out, I don't necessarily think that Matthew 24 isn't true. In other words, it's not a sure and certain interpretation of this. Furthermore, it has been 62 years since that and counting. It's continuing to go on. Some people thought, what is a generation? They give you numbers like 25. They give you numbers like 40. Remember 88 reasons that the rapture would happen in 1988? Talk about that a little bit next week. But, the, you know, date setters love this budding of the fig tree thing. And they say within that 40 years, you know, Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert, said that pamphlet. And there was, it was 40 years from, from the crucifixion of Christ to the destruction of Jerusalem, said the pamphlet. So one more 40-year period, it's 1948 to 1988. Well, friends, we're still here, all right? The Lord is definitely going to come back at some point, but I know one thing for certain. He's not coming back in 1988. All right, I definitely can make that... Is that a prediction? I don't think that's even a prediction at this point, a post-diction, okay? He didn't return. Does that mean that the, the budding of fig tree is not... Israel, I'm not saying that. Does that mean that the reestablishment of the Jews in the promised land is not significant? I am definitely not saying that. Friends, everything's significant, especially when it comes to the Jews. But I cannot go any further. Shall we move on? Okay, let's move on. The clarity then is, look at the whole chapter. Look at what Jesus has said, especially, friends, look at verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Measure it that way, by the spread of the gospel around the world. Unreached people groups, missions, do it that way. Clarity. Secondly, immediacy. What does Jesus mean when he says, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I want to zero in on this phrase, right at the door. The immediacy of the second coming of Christ. There is a sense of immediacy. Jesus' return would be imminent after all these things occurred. But he's also going to say at the end of this chapter, we should always carry around in our hearts a sense of the imminence of the return of Christ, a sense of the immediacy of it. 
And, and don't be disillusioned when they then study church history and find out that, that 7th century Christians had a sense of the immediacy of the return of Christ and, and that they were convinced it could be in their lifetime they should be ready at any moment. Like, boy, they were a bunch of fools. No, they were being obedient. The Lord wanted the 7th century Christians to be ready for the imminent return of Christ. How do we do that? How do we put all this together? A sense of the immediacy of Christ. A sense of this, this phrase, right at the door, is used in James chapter 5 and verse 9, uh, where it says, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He's right there at the door. He's ready to just open the door and come in. So don't have conflicts with each other, dear friends, because Jesus is right there. In him we live and move and have our being. We need a sense of the imminence of Christ and of his return. And so we need, in some sense, every day, an immediate encounter with Jesus Christ. You need a sense that he is right at the door. He's right there. And why? Because you will live differently if you do. How do we get that? Well, I'm telling you, the word of Christ is the only thing that can do that for you. It's only by consistently being in the word that your faith is strengthened. I love that hymn we sing. Cause our faith to rise. You know, Keith Gaddy and Stuart Townend wrote, Cause our faith to rise. How does that happen? By the word. By the ministry of the word. Be in the word and your faith's going to rise. And you'll have a sense Jesus could come back today. He could come back today. I could die today. I could be in the presence of Jesus before the sun goes down tonight. I want that sense of immediacy today. How do I get that? Be in the Word. Be in the Word. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Say it to yourself. Say it to each other. Pray it. Come. Don't miss church. Don't miss church. I know it's summer, dear friends. But don't miss church. You need the food of the Word to keep Jesus imminent in your heart. Now, there's a problem here, okay? How do we add up the signs and still say Jesus could come back tonight? For example, how do I preach on the abomination of desolation and say that I think that the temple is going to be rebuilt and there'll be an antichrist and all that? And you say, well, that hasn't happened yet. So we know one thing, until they do some incredibly fast building this afternoon, and this guy has an incredibly, but even that doesn't, it kind of blows the, the Daniel timetable thing about three and a half years and all that. So I don't, it just doesn't add up. So we can conclude one thing, Jesus is not coming back tonight. Don't do that. The end of Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25 says specifically don't do that. William Cooper wrote a a, a hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And he says this powerful thing in that hymn. He says, God is his own interpreter. The final, sovereign, accurate interpretation of Matthew 24 will be done by Jesus. Okay? When he returns, and, and if you come and say, yeah, but my pastor said, hey, look, Dust in the wind, dear friends. Bad teaching will go away. False interpretations will disappear. Jesus will come back when he chooses. He defines what an unreached people group is. He defines what's going on with Daniel. He's going to decide all that. And when he comes like a king, he's coming. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. We need to be ready today because he told us to be ready today. But still, look at the signs. Hold those two in tension. If you're struggling with that, then struggle away. We'll get to that in a moment. But Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, talking to the Thessalonian Christians there, who are expecting, actually they thought they'd missed the bus. Some false teachers had come and said the day of the Lord has already come. 
Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the man of lawlessness appears and the apostasy and all of these things. And he says the Antichrist has to come. So you read 2 Thessalonians 2 and you say, what am I do with that? That's a, Paul, an apostle of Christ, said that. And so if the man of, if the apostasy hasn't occurred and the man of lawlessness hasn't set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God, then Jesus can't return. So how do we hold these things in tension? I don't know exactly. Let me give you some, some suggestions. First of all, we are not like the apostles after the ascension of Jesus to be standing ready for the second coming of Christ by gawking up at the clouds. The apostles get special things we don't get. They get angels sent saying, stop that. <laughs> Go back and pray and wait for the gift the Father has promised. The Holy Spirit's coming. You have work to do. And so we are to be kind of looking upward in our hearts, but busy with our hands and with our mouths and our minds, doing our spiritual gift ministries, active building the, the kingdom until Jesus comes back. Like it says in one translation, occupy until I come. Be busy doing stuff. But in your hearts, know he is his own interpreter. He could come tonight. He can come tonight. So we need to be ready. We need to keep watch. I'll get to that at the end of this chapter in Matthew 24. But, you know, don't say, hey, my master's a long time in coming. I can live however I want. That's the specific attitude Jesus is driving away at the end of Matthew 24. In verse 13 of chapter 25, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. You're told what to do. So there is a mysterious balance here. Add up the signs of the times, the budding of the fig tree and all that. But at the same time say... Jesus could come back any time. I actually think you need to be ready for two mysterious things. You need to be ready at any time for the second coming of Christ and ready any time for your own death. Because you don't know the, the, the day or the hour of either one and it really amounts to the same thing. You live the same way. You don't do anything you're ashamed of. You're just ready all the time because the Lord could come back or you could go to the Lord in death. And he's sovereign over both of those things. So that brings us immediately to the third issue and that is the difficulty of Christ's words. Christ's words are not easy. They're not easy to understand. It just takes labor. 2 Timothy 2.15, for people like myself, pastors who are called to the ministry of the word, that's a key verse for us. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, workmen who don't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Don't be lazy in the word, O oh pastors. Dig deep. Try to understand. Compare one passage to the next. Cut it straight. Do a good job. Don't be slapdash in your interpretation. Why? Because the word is difficult. And we have an example of it right here. Look at verse 34. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Oh boy, what are we going to do with that statement? Frankly, many of Christ's words are said to be difficult in the Gospels. Mark 9.32, it says, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Don't you love that? I have no idea what that is, and I don't want to ask him. Do you? No, I don't want to ask him. Let's just be blissfully ignorant, because I have no idea what he's talking about. Luke 18, 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. This is, there are many such statements. How about this one? After Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus loses 90 plus percent of his followers that day. And they all said the same thing. This is a difficult saying who can understand it. Very difficult. Now this one in Matthew 24, 34 is one of the more debated statements of Christ. What does Jesus mean when he says that this generation 
would not pass away until all these things have happened. You know, they work on both of those. What is this generation and what are all these things that he's talking about? They go back and forth. He begins it with a solemn declaration. I tell you the truth, or truly I say to you. Everything Jesus says is true. But when he uses like, truly, truly I say to you, or in this case, truly I say to you, I don't think he's saying this is more true than the other things I say. Everything he says is true. But in a way, he's saying, sit up and pay attention. Notice this. I want to tell you something. This is important. That's what he's doing. <laughs> but what does he mean? Well, let's reject some interpretations we know it can't mean. The, the generation, I don't think he's referring to the human race as a whole. It could, grammatically, the Greek word, it could mean the human race. And in effect, then he would be saying, the human race will not be extinct before the end of the world. Well, that's a relief to all those that watch like end-of-the-world type movies where you're wondering if we're going to become extinct. But that's not even what Jesus is talking about here. Neither is he saying, I think, that the church will not die out before he returns. That's a relief to everyone, but what would the point be? And he already said that unless those days have been shut, cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. There will be some elect when Jesus returns. That's who the angels are going to go gather anyway. I think it's impossible for Jesus to mean this. Before every single solitary person that's alive today dies, I will come back in glory to judge the world. How do you know that's not true? Well, it didn't happen, friends. And it's amazing how people play with the idea that Jesus may have been wrong. I mean, even Jesus made mistakes when it came to the second coming. Jesus never made a single mistake. Next week we'll talk about his statement when he says that he didn't know when the exact time would be. But the fact of the matter is, it cannot mean that all of these things, including the second coming, would happen in the first century A.D. Because then Jesus would be wrong. And if Jesus is wrong about anything, I don't want to hear him about anything. He's a false prophet. But he's not a false prophet. Everything he says is true. So we dispense with that. Well, then what could it mean? Well, various options that we can consider. Could be that he's just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem saying that that will happen within the lifetime of those standing there. And some, many reputable commentators take that approach. Some who are alive today will be alive when the temple is destroyed. And that did happen. And so in support of that is just the simple use of the word, this generation. Within this generation, the temple will be destroyed. And that's literally what did happen. But there are some problems with that approach. Jesus has just gotten done describing the events of the second coming. Coming in the clouds and everyone's going to see him and, and the angels sent out and gathering the elect and, and then all these things comes right after that and all these things, this generation won't pass away until all those things have happened. So that's difficult. Still some hold to it. So he's going back to, you know, talking about the temple at that point. Option number two, I think, is that he's referring, the word generation can refer to race. And I think here, this is the best of many difficult interpretations, but the best is he's referring to the Jewish race as a whole. The Jewish race will not become extinct, will not be eradicated from the face of the earth, despite all of the assaults there will be on it. Now think about that. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter on the Sabbath. It's a specifically Jewish attack when the temple is destroyed. And when the, when the Jews, sorry, the Romans come in in 70 AD, they are wanting to kill Jews and not just a few. They're wanting to kill them all, I think. Josephus estimates between one and two million Jews killed by the sword. What a bloodbath. And we should not think it's just a no-brainer that the Jews will be around when Jesus returns. They have been attacked and persecuted in just about every generation. They have been a, a special focus of satanic attack all along. 
And I can, I, I've got historical dates. I don't want to give it to you. But just even Christians, so-called Christians in the Crusades went after the Jews. During the Black Plague, they blamed the Jews and went after them. Muslims in, in different generations have wiped out whole communities of Jews. Tsarist Russia had their pogroms and their attacks. And of all of them, of course, the worst under, under the Nazis in Germany. Six million of them exterminated in a clear desire on the part of the Germans, the final solution of getting rid of the Jewish race as a whole, eradicating it completely. So therefore, I think it's no small assertion that Jesus makes that there will be a recognizable, identifiable Jewish people when he returns. That's, that's actually a miracle, quite frankly, given all the persecution, the attack on them. And why will they be there? Because his sovereign power will guarantee it. And why? Because God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. He still has purposes for the Jewish nation. And so he's going to uphold them and he's going to take godlessness away from Jacob and they will turn to Christ at the end. That's why. And so he's saying, despite all of the assaults and the attacks, there'll still be a recognizable Jewish nation at the end. The difficulty, however, Christ's words. You may say, you know what, Pastor? I don't agree with that interpretation. Fine. I am not as certain about that as I am about this. Jesus is coming back someday. And so there is, in my mind, a hierarchy of certainty of truth. Some things are clearer than others. I'm just telling you, the Bible is a hard book to interpret. It's not all easy, friends. There is milk and there is meat. More on that in a moment. But the fact is difficulty. So we've seen clarity. We've seen immediacy. We've seen difficulty. Now, finally, the eternity of Christ's words. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This temporary universe, friends, this temporary universe, that's our home for a little while. Heaven and earth will pass away. He's testified to this many times. Look back at verse 29. He says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. And the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's the future, friends. It's all going away. Or this one, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. And again, in that same book, Hebrews 12, 26 and 27, looking back to Sinai, when God came down to Sinai and shook the earth, it says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken so that those things that cannot be shaken will remove or will remain. And what is it that cannot be shaken? The kingdom of Christ cannot be shaken. We're receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken through the word of God. Or this one, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So there is nothing physical. There is nothing that our five senses can take in in the physical world that God created, of which it's speaking here, that is eternal. And the bent of our hearts is always to make it so, isn't it? This is really my life. This is what I love. This is what I cling to. Don't. Let it go. Let it go. Because the world and its desires is passing away. But the man who does the will of God stands forever. An amazing statement that Jesus is making here. He's saying, my words that I'm speaking to are more permanent than the universe. Do you realize only God 
could make a statement like that? Not even the prophets would talk like that. Prophets don't talk like that. They say, thus says the Lord, and then they go. Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, my words, my words are more permanent than the universe. He is God in the flesh, dear friends. He was God in a body. And he was standing there talking and he said, my words will still be around. Similar to the assertion he made earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away or disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's equating his own words to the, the law, uh, Psalms and prophets. He says, my words are scripture. Now, God has the highest esteem for his own word. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. It says in Psalm 138 that God is exalted above all things, his name and his word. And so heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Dear friends, Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God stands forever. All men are like grass. Friends, we are temporary. We are impermanent. We're not going to be here much longer. God's word is going to still be here. And notice he says, my words. I find that fascinating. Not just kind of my word, like a theological principle, but my, my words, my nouns, my adjectives, my, my, my connectors, my, my sentences, my paragraphs will still be around. People still be reading them. A movie recently, I read about it in World Magazine called Book of Eli, where it was down to one Bible. Friends, there are billions of Bibles in the world. Billions of them. Satan has tried to attack this book. It's still here, friends. It's still here. Voltaire said within his, within a hundred years, no one in France would be, would be a Christian. Christianity would be gone. Nobody would be reading the Bible. Friends, we're still here. <laughs> the Bible is still here. Voltaire is gone. But the scripture is still here and it will be forever. Now, what application can we take from this. Well, why does Jesus make this assertion? He wants us to put our faith and our confidence in his word. Trust in that. He wants churches based on the word, not based on glitzy showmanship and entertainment and titillating people's senses so that they can feel good for just a little short time like eating a candy bar and then you return to the warfare in the trenches. He wants you to base your life on the word. Base your churches on the word and base your church going on feeding on the word. That's what he's saying here. So I want you to begin by just marveling at the, at the living word of God. Marvel at it. Marvel at its clarity. Marvel at its immediacy. Marvel at its difficulty and its eternity. And when it comes to the clarity, if I can just urge you, come to Christ for him to make everything clear. The clearest thing in the Bible is how sinners are made right with God. It's the clearest thing is that there is a God. He is holy. He has laid down laws. They are to be fully obeyed. We have sinned. All of us have broken the laws of God. We are going to die and stand before this mighty God and give an account for every careless word we have spoken. We, apart from Christ, are lost. We are damned. We are going to spend eternity in hell. But God sent his son 
who shed his blood on the cross, he died in our place, that we might have eternal life. If you repent and trust in him, all your sins will be forgiven. And then Jesus will speak those beautiful words over you. Take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Your sins are forgiven you. And you're righteous in my sight. If you hear nothing else about this sermon, hear this. If you're lost, don't be lost anymore. Come to Christ and let him make everything clear. And if you're a Christian and been a Christian for years, then come to Christ every day over the scripture. Just say, Jesus, make this clear to me. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Teach me your word. And bring him some difficult things. I don't know what I think about Matthew 24 and all this stuff. Pastor has his opinion. Very opinionated guy. It's all right. I guess it's his job to be opinionated. But I want to know the truth. Jesus, like the Bereans, Jesus, teach me, Matthew 24. Search the scriptures. Clarity, immediacy. God wants you to live moment by moment with a sense of the immediate presence of God in your life. So that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you're doing it to the glory of God. You can only have that immediacy through the word. God has, is mediating it to you through the word. Look, Hindus have spiritual experiences, even astral projection, out-of-body experiences. Muslim Sufis have those kinds of things. There are even some that call themselves Christians, don't read the word much, but they're looking for an experience of the Spirit. That's dangerous, dear friends. Get your experience through the word, but let it be a rich, full experience with Christ. Don't be distant from him. Let him mediate his love to you in a sense of presence, and you will live a more holy life, and you will live a more fruitful life, immediacy. And be ready constantly for the second coming of Christ. Be ready at any hour. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19 years old, made some resolutions. Resolution 19, resolved. Never to do anything which I should be ashamed to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. That was in the early 18th centuries. He never heard the last trumpet. But he was ready at any moment to not do anything he'd be ashamed for Christ to find him doing that when he returned. So also we have to be ready at any time for our own death, as I've said. Resolution number seven. Resolved to never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. It's really, in the end, the same thing. And what about the difficulty of the word? There is milk in the word. Drink it. It's sweet. But there's meat too. Don't despise the process it takes for a pastor when preaching or for you when studying to find out difficult things in the word. As John Piper said, if you use a rake, all you get is leaves. But if you use a shovel, you might get gold. So dig down. Or as one of my Bible professors said, the best cookies are on the highest shelf. So work for it. Go after it. Because there's some difficult passages. And finally, eternity. Meditate much on this statement. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount saying, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it's had its foundation on the rock. And so it is. If you're having financial troubles, maybe out of, out of a job or, or needing, you know, just struggling financially, build your life on the word of God. Go to Hebrews 13. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has told you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Go to that. Feed on that. In your marriage, learn again what marriage is about. Matthew 19. 
Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they're no longer two but one. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Come to the Word for your marriage. Same thing with parenting. I could go topic by topic. Base your whole life on the Word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away but Jesus' words are still going to be here when we see Him face to face. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.